hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest has written about food, travel, books, relationships and urban life for New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The Sunday Times in London, The Guardian and others. She is a New York Times bestselling author of seven books of fiction, including The Middlesteens and All Grown Up. And most recently, a memoir, I Came All This Way to Meet You. Her work has been published in 16 languages. She is also the founder of the annual Hashtag 1000 Words of Summer project and maintains the popular Craft Talk newsletter year-round. She lives in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's my pleasure to welcome Jamie Attenberg. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so wonderful to get to chat to you. I know our listeners are going to get so much out of the book we're discussing today. We are going to link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page because I know you guys are all going to want to order this straight after hearing this interview. So the book we're talking about today is called A Thousand Words, A Writer's Guide to Staying Creative, Focused and Productive All Year Round. So Jamie, before we dive into some of the content, can you tell us how this literary movement began? Sure. So in 2018, 
I was sitting at my local wine shop with my friend, Anne Gieselson, who is a wonderful writer, memoirist, essayist, and she's also a teacher at our arts high school in the neighborhood. And we were both trying to get motivated. I had to finish a novel by the end of the summer, and she was trying to write a new book proposal. And I was like, let's do like a boot camp, like write a thousand words a day every day for like two weeks. And I just felt like one week wasn't going to be enough, and a month was going to be like just feel like we had a part-time job or something like that. So two weeks was what we decided. And then I went back and home and I tweeted about it because I'm a pretty online person. And all these people online were like, oh, I want to do it too. So I just thought I'll start a little newsletter and I'll send little letters out every day. And then I asked some writer friends to write little letters too. And so that first year we were all just kind of making it up as we went along and hashtagging a thousand words of summer. And so we could check in at the end of the day and see how productive we were being and cheer each other on. And then by the end of that first summer, we had like 2000 people. And then the next year we had 5,000 people and the next year we had 10,000, you know, so it just sort of kept building. And it's always just been this community of people out there on the internet and me, and I'm just sort of sending these letters out. And these great writers have been sending these letters out and it's really built up. And I think we have 36,000 people signed up for the mailing list. All this great stuff has come out of it. People have gotten book deals, finished their master's thesis, built you know great friendships out of it. So it's just been a really lovely experience watching this online community grow. And you know, I think the most important thing is that we all are just sitting down and showing up for ourselves and doing our work. Yeah, something that strikes me there is you sound so much like me in that I go, I am now going to focus on my writing. There are too many distractions. I'm going to focus on my writing and claw out time. And then five minutes later, I'm like, okay, I'm going to add a newsletter and add a whole bunch of different people (laughs) to this endeavor, in which I said was just going to be for me clawing out my time. But it sounds, Jamie, that you are exactly what we talk about on the podcast. We talk about being good literary citizens and helping other writers and paying it forward whenever possible. And it's insane some of the people that you got to write for this. I mean, you know, for our listeners, there are authors in here like Lauren van der Berg, we've got Roxane Gay, we've got Ruman Alam. I mean, this is like the who's who Celeste Ng of publishing, Maggie Shipstead, etc. So, you know, was that a case of these are just your friends and you mailed them and we're like, hey guys, can you help me out? Or how did that work? I mean, kind of. I, You know, some some people I really, I know pretty well and some people I've known for years, meaning you know, we see each other at literary festivals, or we've maybe we've had dinner once or drinks once, or we have friends in common, things like that. I think almost all of these people I've met in person at least once. And they're just very generous people. I think we all know what it's like to feel lonely in the room by yourself. And so this is, they're also good literary citizens. I've been doing this for a long time. I've had, this is my ninth book. So my first book came out in 2006. And I lived in New York for a long time. I live in New Orleans now. But when you live in New York, you can't, you know, it's easier, I think, to meet writers because a lot of writers are coming through town. And I had a reading series that I hosted there as well. I had two different reading series that I hosted. So I would meet people that way. But honestly, I like, love writers. (laughs) Like I'm very, I'm so happy I get to be a writer and I'm so enthusiastic about the process and it really feels like writers are my people. So I'm always reaching out to people. And again, being online, I think is part of it too, that if you're, you know, on Twitter or on Instagram, in particular, Twitter, I think was really how I formed some of these relationships. You're not online because you want to be left alone. You know, you're, you're trying to reach out to people. 
Yeah, no, but a lot of people would kind of use those contacts for themselves for blurbs, etc. So it does take a special kind of person who's going, okay, I have these contacts and how can I use them for the power of good to help other writers? So that was pretty awesome to see the literary citizenship on display there. And in Toronto, we have a great literary community here as well. Women who get together, we have dinners, we have emails with each other, and writers really do support each other in the most incredible ways. And that's always something I find very heartening. One of my favorite writer buddies in the world lives in Toronto, Claire Cameron. She is my fave. She's one of my first readers. And we met at a literary festival. And then we went to hung out in New York. Like we met once and then we're like, let's go hang out in New York. And then she came down to New Orleans. And and this summer I was actually in Toronto. And it was great. I wish I could remember the name of the very cute bookstore that I went to there. And it was, you know, it's just very natural, very natural. Amazing. Well, shout out to Claire, who we also love. The bookstore must have been Ben McNally's Queen Street Books or Type Books. I feel like it was one of those three. It was very tiny. I don't know what tiny means in Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I could have been any of those. We've got small bookstores. Okay, so now we're going to dive into some of these essays because I know that they're really going to resonate with our listeners. So the one I'm going to ask you to read first, Jamie, is the one on page... 11, Why I Write. That is one of my greatest hits. I love that one. Why am I committed to this act in my life? These answers I have developed over time, and I imagine they could change, but I'm more than 50 years old, and there are some things I know to be true. I write because it's the thing I have to offer, the sharpest skill I have. I write to make people feel less alone. I write as an act of service. I write because I want to communicate messages with the world. I write because it's a political statement, because I'm a feminist, and I want to exercise my freedom of speech. I write because I believe in myself and that I have something worth saying. I write because I'm an artist, and if I didn't make my art, I'd probably go mad. I write because it's fun. I take genuine pleasure in the words dancing before me on the page. I write to make myself laugh. I write to process my shit. I write because it's my job, and I get paid to do so, and I don't take that for granted. I don't take any of this for granted ever. And I write because I have mental health issues and writing is one way I contend with my anxiety. It never feels like anything important is real to me unless I've written it down in some way. Even if it's just in my journal, in secret, in hiding, my specific business or artistic dreams or goals operate right alongside this need to steady myself in the world with my words. How do I cut through all the constant buzzing around me and capture the simple truths with the slash of a sentence? Absolutely love that. And remember what we're always saying to our listeners, verb choice is so important. The slash of a sentence, not writing a sentence. So Jamie's just underpinned that for us. Jamie, something that our listeners really struggle with is because we have a lot of writers who are trying to break into publishing and they're on their second or third books and they've sent their queries out and they're still not getting agents, etc. And they end up feeling really disillusioned, really discouraged. And sometimes what worries me is that they want to turn away from writing because this thing that has always brought them pleasure in their lives is now suddenly bringing them so much despair. And that's why that essay really resonated. Because if we write with the thought in mind that it only has value if we get published, we are going to fail so often. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I mean... Part of this book is about how the best part of all of this about wanting to be a writer is actually the writing. 
And the publishing part of it is, so there's a difference between capitalism and your art, you know? I don't want to say to people, your dream is not important because your dream is important and and you love books and you want to see, you know, you want to have your books as objects that you can hold in front of you. I will tell you that I self-published before I, you know, I would do zines. I did that for years before I was actually able to put a full length book together. And so I do think, I just want to say that if it is important to you or that you have that object in front of you, that self-publishing is really an option. But Beyond that, I just think that the best part always for me is the writing, is the sitting down and being there. You know, it doesn't feel like a job to me. It feels like playtime. And I would encourage people to think about that. And I would encourage people to sit down and write their own list of why they write. And that's something that I return to. I ret- I'm like, if you looked at my journal, my journals over the years, they're just crazy because they're just the same thing over and over again. Why do I write? What is this book about? You know, what's the purpose of all of this? And it's just something that I can return to again and again to keep me motivated because it's a really long journey because it's a really long life. <laughs> yeah. And the journey to publication for many people can be littered with a lot of rejection. And, you know, that's where the the despondency comes in. But I say to people, try and take a break from querying, try and take a break from trying to get your agent and just come back occasionally and remind yourself why you write in the first place. Yes, you have this dream of holding this book in your hand, but, you know, to give up writing because you are not able to, to get published feels like you are, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. You're kind of, you're doing damage to yourself because as a kid, as a young adult, as a young person, you came to writing for a reason. And I would add, you can also, I, I like the idea of taking a little bit, bit of a break from it. And, and I would add that reading is really, reading other people is really important and really helpful and it can motivate you. I just did an event last night with wonderful Courtney Sullivan, and we were talking about how sometimes reading can, you know, just inspire you. But also there's that feeling of when you read a really good book and you get to the end of it, you feel jealous, not for their career or their life, but just that they're done. <laughs> You're like, I want to be done. I want that feeling, you know, you know, how are you can get that motivation? Get it. Oh, sometimes I feel jealous because it's so well written that I'm like, oh my God, I wish I could have written something like this. But then, yeah, it's harnessing that to go, I need to up my game if I want to write something this good, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah, we've got another one on page 57, Gaining Control. Will you read that for us as well, please? Yeah, I haven't read this one before. Let's see. Writing these thousand words is an attempt to achieve a small semblance of control in our lives. To sit down and write is an act of grasping at a stable, realized moment in the war of existence. It's a way to fix a feeling or a thought or a gesture in this particular moment in time. The questions and crises and doubts that filter through our days, this is how we capture them. Yes, we write toward the future, but also we claim right now with our words, 1,000 of them today. Yeah. When I read this part, what resonated with me there is that I've interviewed so many authors over the last while who told me how they sat down to write a particular book while sitting at the bedside of their mother who was dying, who was not doing well, who was very ill, whatever the case may be, and how... They had no control over their mother's health or their relative's health or whether they would get better or not. But what they did have control over was having that pen and paper or having that laptop and being able to express themselves and being able to write. And I feel these days, especially, there is so much out of our control. And for people who do suffer from anxiety, that is so, so difficult. And I love what you said there about how writing is a way of regaining control. 
I've been on tour for, you know, two weeks. I'm at home now. I'm going to hop on a plane again after in, in two hours. And I sat down this morning with my notebook and was like, all right, how do you feel? How do you feel? <laughs> because if I didn't do that, I, I don't know if I would know because I'm in motion right now. And I think a lot of us aren't just in constant motion. If you are working a day job, if you have a family, if you have people you're giving care to, anything like that at all, sometimes you just are in a go mode as opposed to a feeling mode or a checking in with yourself mode. And so that that to me is, it's just always the most important check-in. Even though today I wrote three sentences. <laughs> I was like, that's about all the feelings that I can muster up you know, right now, or my understanding and my feelings right now. But it's there, it exists. I I saw myself for a second on the page. Yeah, three sentences better than no sentences. Right. So something we get a lot of as well is imposter syndrome. And especially with women, you know, you don't hear a lot of male writers going, nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Why? Why do I think I have something to say that other people want to read? And so I'm going to ask you to read the one on page 72. There is only one you because I think that that answers that question for people. We all question our work, how we write it and the validity of its substance. More often than not, I look at what I've written and think, well, this is obviously not very good. But I trust that it will get there. I trust that the core of me contains a message worthy of being spoken. I trust that if I write and rewrite and think and rewrite and stare out the window and read other people and then write and rewrite more, it will get better. And then maybe I will be ready to be heard. There's only one you, your voice is singular. And if you do not write these thousand words, no one will ever know what you have to say. You absolutely must have faith in yourself that what you need to talk about is important and that a reader will care about it. And you will write those thousand words so that people will listen to you. You have to go into this believing you are worth being heard. I have to say about imposter syndrome, because I just did a, on the newsletter, I have this regular newsletter, Craft Talk, that I do year round as like a supplement to a thousand words a summer, that I just did a thread about imposter syndrome. I personally think we should throw that term out the window. But when I was doing tour, everyone asked me, I had a question a night about, you know, at each event about it and how you deal with it. And I actually had a conversation with Jody Ann Bury, who did a TED Talk on imposter syndrome, and she's sort of somebody who's done a, a lot of original research on it. And Jody Ann said on our message board, and then also she's she chatted with me about it. But it's like, why would you want to give yourself a syndrome? <laughs> like we're the ones who are giving it to ourselves. We're the ones who are, you know, choosing to feel that way about ourselves. It, no one else is imposing that on us except for us. So I would just throw it out the window. I would just. And I do agree that it's probably way more women than men that it's happening to. And it's just a little trick. It's a little it's a little trick our our mind slash capitalism is playing on us. And I think that we can move beyond it. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier J. Courtney Sullivan. And there's a part I highlighted in her essay where it goes, a writer's time is precious. You know what none of us has the time for right now? Self-doubt. And that is so true because... You can either spend the time doubting yourself and beating yourself up and saying, nobody cares, you have no worth, or you can sit down and use that exact same time to get your thoughts down and to write. The time is going to pass regardless. So I agree, we don't have the time for it. I would recommend if you feel like you have that syndrome, the thing that you're really actively doing to yourself, I would recommend sitting down and writing to the source of it and understanding because you didn't like you weren't born that way. So at some point, somebody said something to you or you, you know, 
I'm not, by the way, I'm not blaming anyone <laughs> for this at all. It, it sounds like it's quite normal, but like use it as an exercise, use it as a writing exercise. And then you've written it and it's done and you have an understanding of it and you move on and then you keep writing. Yeah, excellent advice. I'm going to read something here from Mira Jacobs' essay. So, and this is something we get a lot of the time on the podcast as well, because we have a lot of people who are writing a bit older in life and feel like time is running out for them. So she says, can we talk for a moment about expiration dates, the little invisible stamp we all carry in the lining of our foreheads that tell us that our time is running out or just ran out or ran out so long ago that there is nothing we can possibly write to make up for the literary life that might have been. Because I have a feeling about expiration dates for dreams in general. They're bullshit and writing dreams in particular. They're bullshit. I say this as someone who managed to publish fuck all in her 20s and 30s, despite writing a few excellent stories and many okay ones. As someone who by age 36 worked from 9am to 9pm with a short break around dinner time to feed a baby and stare at the abyss, that struck out and it says Facebook, where one endless five under 35 list stared back at me. As someone who wrote a novel from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. for 12 years, which started to feel like a willful self-delusion by year seven, because why on earth was I going on with my silly sentences when the world had clearly passed me by? I think about this all the time now, how easy it would have been to stop. And, you know, I just, I, I think that's going to resonate with so many people as well, because there isn't this expiration point. Somebody like Delia Owens published Where the Crawdads Sing in her 70s. I had somebody come to my event in DC the other night and she was like, I didn't really start writing until, she's maybe like a year older than me, I'm 52. And she said, I didn't I didn't start writing until I was 50. I didn't start, you know, maybe she had written, but she wasn't really like focused on it, taking it seriously. And then she had kind of found her way in through A Thousand Words a Summer. And she just sold her first middle grade book, It's Coming Out. And she's got a whole novel that she's got out on submission right now. She started at the age of 50. I have other friends who have like definitely their first books came out in their 50s. I think it's exciting, especially as someone, I mean, I'm, I'm like really in the middle age menopausal moment in my life. And I'm just starting to, I'm just getting started. That's how I feel about it. Like I would never have written a book like this in my 40s or my 30s. And now I'm like, oh, there's a whole new world out there for me. And I mean, I'm my main focus is writing novels. That's where I've spent most of my time. But I love that this opportunity exists and that there's this whole community. There's all, oh, there's just all possibilities. I think you just have to see it as possibilities. Yeah, rather than limitations, you know. Okay, another one that I'd like you to read is on page 114, Strength Training. Well, you read my book. Thank you. Sometimes you do interviews and people have. I loved it. I loved it. You will write these thousand words because it can help you build strength artistically, intellectually, professionally, and emotionally. You're doing real labor here, creating a space for yourself out of thin air, each word on top of another, stairs to the sky, a bridge to a fantastic location. It's heavy lifting writing these words every day, but you will see real results. Close your eyes, picture the physicality of what you're doing. You're building a future with your words. That gave me goosebumps. I love that so much. And for our listeners who say, I struggle to carve out time for my writing because my family sees it as me just sitting doing nothing, especially if they walk past my writing room and I'm gazing into space. They're like, well, you're not really doing anything with this time you've carved out for yourself. But to picture it as something you are building with your words is genius, Jamie. Ah, that's so great. Well, it does feel like 
a whole imaginary universe is in my head. And it has felt like that since I was like very young. Like I've always just written stories and I've always just seen this other place. Hold on one second. I have this dog next to me and he's scratching and I'm worried that it's going to like, you can hear it. Sorry. My golden retriever is snoring <laughs> next to me. So if you can't hear her snoring, we're okay, good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just a, it's a magical world, right? It's like a very fun time to, I love the, I love coming up with characters. I love picturing what they're wearing, what, picturing what they're eating, what the room looks like that they're sitting in. I love all of that. That's the most exciting thing. This isn't what you asked me about, but the novel that I have coming out in September, the way that I kind of got into it was I was just like looking for clothes on Etsy. And then I just, I found myself like leaning towards like a 1980s puffy sleeved outfit and imagining who was wearing that, you know, and that's, that's just staring at a computer screen, but it's still doing something, right? It's still building something. I mean, also it's shopping, but <laughs> but it, it's, <laughs> but it's still it's still building something, and it's just that's part of why it's like one of my favorite things to do. And you know, we have to live to write. So on the podcast, I do say bumming chair. There is no alchemy to writing. There's no secret that needs to be unlocked. It is sitting down and getting the words on the page. But balancing that out, you do need to love. You do need to watch TV shows and be inspired by them. You do need to read. You do need to do online shopping. You do need to go into a coffee shop and eavesdrop on other people because it's all the living that's going to inspire the work. Yeah. Put yourself out there. Be curious. I talk about that a lot in the book about being curious. Everything I wrote in this book is very simple. It's very simple, pragmatic advice. You're not going to think, oh, she really invented something new. But I, I think it's the collection of ideas together. And I think that in conversation with all these amazing letters from other people, I, I really feel like my words are just kind of a vessel or just kind of like a, a structure to support all of these you know, other authors and, and prop them up so you can dive in and out and you can have this experience with all of their voices. But I think my advice is, you know, I don't even know if it's advice. It's more motivational. It's more just telling you that you can. Yeah. I think what really resonates is that they're getting, Jamie herself has experienced this. She's talking about something that I've experienced because somewhere along the line, she's experienced it as well. And look at how far she's come, look how successful she is. And she's had these same feelings. And I think that's what really speaks to people is knowing that they're not alone, that somebody like you has experienced this and has pushed past it as well. Our last one that I'd like to discuss is on page 115. Will you read the first sort of paragraph and a half of Maggie Shipstead's contribution? Sometimes, especially in a first draft, I get paralyzed by a fear of doing it wrong, of taking an approach that I'll eventually have to undo. I might be worried about a question of plot, or I might be unsure about the voice I've adopted, obsessing over first person versus third or present tense versus past. It's difficult for me to make peace in advance for the inevitable detours, backtracks, wrong turns, dead ends, flat tires. Other times I forge ahead while a big red light flashes that what I'm doing isn't working. I'm ever hopeful that the flashing light is wrong, that down the road, my first readers will reassuringly contradict the warning. This has never happened. My gut instinct that something isn't working has always been correct, but maybe, paradoxically, my instinct to push through anyway has also been correct. I needed to put down the wrong thing in order to be able to let it go. The inherent in inefficiency of writing fiction makes me anxious, but I think being anxious is a necessary, if unpleasant, part of my process. Writing is really hard, and making peace with it being hard is hard, too. Sometimes you're going to do it right, and sometimes you're going to do it wrong. Yeah, and that speaks to what one of my co-hosts says. We have 
agents who are co-hosts on the podcast and they, one of them, Cece Lira, often says, the purpose of writing is not efficiency. And a lot of writers go, oh, I wasted time for one year writing something and then realizing it was the wrong thing. But you had to go down that dead end road in order to backtrack to get to where the magic was. So we're not aiming for efficiency here. It's never a waste of time. I see that now, you know, 18 years into this and a lifetime of writing. I see that I have to write through things to get to the next place. And sometimes I use characters and sometimes I, you know, in, oh, I wrote 50 pages and this is the wrong book, but I'm going to use this character in another book. But I, I don't know. Sometimes I don't use them, but I'm trying something else out. You know, maybe I'm, I'm learning how to write a specific kind of scene or I wrote an entire book just because I want to learn how to make my characters move more physically. A very short book. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't write 100,000 pages, but I wrote a 50,000 page book because I was like, more things need to be happening in my books and I need to learn how to do that. So it's not a waste of time because your words aren't a waste of time. You're not a waste of time. The exercise is not a waste of time. Maybe things aren't happening as quickly as you would like them to, but they are taking as long as they need to take. I love it. Okay, so for our listeners who want to sign up for the 1000 Words of Summer and who want to sign up for your newsletter, where can we direct them to? You can just look Google the Craft Talk newsletter, and that's probably the fastest way to do it. There is a whole URL that I wish I had made shorter six years ago or eight years ago when I started this <laughs> mailing list. And it is the 1000 words of summer dot substack dot com. But I think if you, if you even just Google my name, it probably will show up fast. But craft, craft talk is the way to go. I don't know yet when I'm going to start it this summer. I was thinking about maybe Memorial Day weekend, and it'll be two weeks there. I often do a mini 1000 as well, which is usually like six days. And there'll be there probably will be one this spring. My new vision is that I will kick off this coming thousand words of summer in New York City in a park and that we would all come and write together. So oh, wow. I don't know exactly how hard that is going to be. It's a plan, but I did just tweet about it and lots of people thought it was a good idea. So sounds incredible. More in real life stuff. I've been doing write alongs on tour, which has been incredible where we all are just sitting together and writing in a room. And there's something about, you know, 50 people in a room sitting down together. It's pretty special. Yeah, I think people are sick of Zoom. They're sick of being apart. So they, they really want to be together. Jamie, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Good luck with the rest of your travels. And for our listeners, we're going to link to the book so you know where to get it. This is a craft book you have got to add to your shelves. Please, please get it. Thank you. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Today's guest is a New Zealand-born writer of fiction, Dancing with Diana, out by Codhill Press, and nonfiction, winner of the Pen and Brush Prose Contest and nominated for a Pushcart Prize. She is a co-founder, performer, and chronicler of Playback Theatre. She lives in upstate New York. It's my pleasure to welcome Joe Salas. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. I'm really delighted to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. So for our listeners, I'm just going to read you the flap copy, a bit of the flap copy of the book we're talking about today, which is Mrs. Low Porter, and it's out from Jack Leg Press. Okay, here's a bit of the, the flap copy at the back. The literary giant Thomas Mann balked at a female translator, but he might well owe his standing in the Western canon to a little-known American woman, Helen Low Porter. 
Based closely on historical source material, Joe Salas's novel, Mrs. Lowe Porter, sympathetically reveals a brilliant woman's struggle to be appreciated as a translator and also to find her own voice in a culture of male dominance. Joe, I thoroughly enjoyed this read. It was just so... It was immersive. You made the history come alive. I loved Helen. I connected with her so much. You know, the story takes place so long ago, but there's still so much in terms of the personal universal element that we can relate to her with. Can you talk us a bit about the inspiration for this? And then I really want to discuss the research because I know that must have been one hell of a process. Okay. Yes, well, the the inspiration... I mean, I can say sort of up front that I have a personal connection to Helen and her story because I'm married to her grandson and we've been married for a very long time and I've been hearing about her since we first met. But it wasn't until relatively recently that I became as interested in her story as I am now. And that was really because my mother-in-law, Patricia Lowe, her daughter, Helen's daughter, herself wanted to write a biography or a memoir about her parents. Both of her parents were quite distinguished people. And she didn't finish it, although she did a lot of research and she wrote a few chapters, which I actually helped her publish in a lovely little book that she was very thrilled about. But it was after she died. So she she started this really too late in her life to be able to complete it, very sadly. But after she died her research kind of came into my hands. I mean, we're her only heirs. And she and I had talked a lot about Helen, about her project. And, you know, it was a a topic that we connected about for a long, long time. So after she died, I had this box of her, her research, and I sat down and, and read through it and started to kind of encounter Helen in a way that I hadn't before. I mean, I knew the basic story. But reading her letters, reading the correspondence between her and Knopf, the publisher, and Thomas Mann, letters between her and her husband, and so on, clippings, this woman began to emerge for me. And it was somebody that I I was intensely interested in, and began to like very much. And I started to think, well, I, I knew that Patricia would want me to finish her biography, her memoir, and I didn't want to do that. I mean, I've written a lot of nonfiction, but I didn't want to write a biography. I didn't want to have that degree of accountability to history. But I did want to write about Helen and have it historically, basically historically accurate. So what came to me first was just a scene, a moment that Patricia had talked about. Did she, I think she wrote about this somewhere a moment when she was visiting her mother when her mother was very old and had some dementia. And her mother was wearing her favorite black silk outfit, sleeveless, flowing like pajama pants. And Patricia was was quite sort of proper at that time. She became less proper as she was older. But at that time, she, she sort of wished her mother would wear something a bit more respectable. But this was Helen's favorite outfit. And just somehow that visual caught me. You know, this old lady at the end of her life, she's done so much in her life, things haven't always gone her way. And here she is wearing her favorite elegant black silk outfit. So I wrote a scene, basically, 
about that, imagining a lot. And it kind of grew from there. So I would say those were my inspirations, you know, reading reading the work that Patricia had gathered and then imagining that moment. Yeah, I love how, and, and she wears the pants for so long that they kind of become grubby and stained with food. And, you know, she kind of looks down at them and is like, why are these so crusty kind of thing? How long have I been wearing these for? Can you speak a bit about the challenges in terms of writing a character who is experiencing dementia? Because there are moments in which she understands, oops, I've made a mistake. I clearly said the wrong thing, Mm -hmm. so I need to be very Mm -hmm. careful now. Was that something Mm -hmm. that involved a lot of research on your side to understand how dementia works? Because you wrote her in those moments incredibly vividly and compassionately. Well, I didn't do a lot of research about that because my life has given me some experience of that with the elders in my life. I've been close to several people of the the generation older than mine who have experienced dementia or Alzheimer's. So in my concept, she's fairly in early stages. She's still able to be more or less coherent. But yes, she makes mistakes. She, She forgets who visited her that day. In the first time that we see her as an old person in the book, she thinks that her daughter is bringing her baby. But in fact, the baby is now a college student, things like that. But I I needed her not to be too, for for the narrative, I needed her not to be too far gone in dementia because I want her to recall her life, you know, think about her life, think about Thomas Mann. So I didn't try to be too clinically accurate. But as I said, you know, my own mother entered into that, that stage of, you know, mild confusion and getting confused about time frames and so on. And unfortunately, you know, several other people, parents and other old friends, I've, I've witnessed what happens. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great example of how writing, how life inspires our writing. And sometimes you don't need to do that kind of research because you've lived it. And so, you know, you can bring that to the page. In terms of finding a balance, Joe, between what source materials you were going to use in terms of, you know, the letters to Knopf and diary entries and other letters, and then the balance between how much you were going to fictionalize. I'd love to know your approach there. And just speaking about the letters, you know, when Knopf asked her if her husband was fine with her using a kind of hyphenated last name in terms of her maiden name and her last name, I was cringing, thinking, oh, my God, a publisher's asking her if her husband gives her permission. But, I mean, this was a sign of those times. Well, I made that up. I don't know that he actually did that. It's quite plausible that he might have, but I don't know that he did that. But this was in the early, this was in the, you know, 1923 or 24, exactly 100 years ago. And not only did most middle-class women not work at that time, but they they certainly didn't use their own their maiden so-called maiden names. So she chose. She actually signed herself in different ways throughout her life. Sometimes it was Porter Low. Sometimes it was just Low. Sometimes it was Porter. But her official professional name was H. T. Low Porter, and that was a very conscious decision to make it androgynous. Lots of people reading the translations. And it was only her translations for a long, long time, thought that she was a man. I remember sitting next to someone on a plane who was reading her, one of her translations and we got talking and I said, she's my husband's grandmother. And they said, oh, no, she, that, that H.G. Lowe Porter is a man. And I said, no, 
<laughs> she was a woman, but she had to struggle, you know, as you see in many instances in the book of very overt and hurtful sexism were absolutely based on fact, documented, yeah. But that particular thing of asking if her husband was okay with it, that was my imagination. And to answer your question about the balance between fiction and nonfiction, that was difficult. And for the first period of writing this, I fictionalized the names. I didn't use the real names because I needed that space. I needed that freedom to imagine. So I wrote the story constantly referring to the the documented history, but also letting myself just imagine these characters as though they were my creation. And then at a certain point, prompted by someone who was advising me, I switched back to the real names for the main characters. The more peripheral characters are much further away from their historical counterpart. The Patricia character is called Marjorie, and in some ways she is based on Patricia, whom I knew so well and was very close to. But in other ways, she's not. I wouldn't say that is Patricia. I, I can't even say that my Helen is the real Helen. She's a character that I have developed in my own imagination, and certainly the contours of her life are very close to Helen's, but I never met her. I mean, any fiction writer, we create characters, as you know, because you're a fiction writer as well, we create characters who've become very real for us. Yeah. You were in conversation with her through her letters, through everything. So, yes. you know, yes. it's, it, maybe you weren't sitting together in the same room at the same time speaking to each other, mm. but certainly you were in conversation with a lot of that material. And you absolutely, yeah, you've brought her so vividly to life. So for our listeners, how the story begins is Helen is, she's really wants to be a writer. She wants to go overseas and she wants to have all of these experiences. And she does not want to get married because she wants to stay true to her craft and, and to being a writer. And then, of course, she meets someone and things happen and then she ends up marrying him. Is it true, Joe, from the book or was that also sort of license you took that straight after they get married, he's kind of like, well, I want to have an open marriage. That was true. Wow. Yes, yes. So he described himself to her as having too strong a sex drive <laughs> to be contained in the marriage, you know. Right. <laughs> and she, I, I don't know exactly what the conversation was, of course, and I don't know what she felt about it. I'm inferring from her letters to him that despite that, they they had a very loving and erotically active relationship well into middle age. But, I mean, I know because he told Patricia and she told me that they had this agreement. And I can only imagine that she was not happy about that. Certainly at that time, I mean, open marriage wasn't a, she wouldn't have known anyone who had a relationship like that. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't what she wanted. It wasn't what she chose. She didn't want to yeah. see other people. He very magnanimously says, well, you can also have an open relationship, but she's the one at home with the children. She's the one who's got this 
job that keeps her at home where she's constantly translating, whereas he gets to travel all over the place and right. meet people. So it's all good and well saying, well, we can both have an open relationship when <laughs> she's the one stuck at home and is not going to yeah. be having these these opportunities. So something else yeah. for our listeners is she really started writing on her own work. She wanted to publish her own work and she wanted to mm-hmm. write fiction and she started working on it, but was constantly helping her husband with his dissertation, which had to be written in German. And then she was doing all these translations, which was bringing in money because her husband wasn't really bringing in a lot of money. So her work was constantly taking a back seat. And Joe does an amazing job. There is a chapter called fictional Ruth scolds her creator. This is in 1910. So Ruth is the character that Helen has been trying for so long to write about in her novel. So it's it's a conversation that the two of them have on the page. So I'd like for Joe and I to, to read this alternately so that you can get a sense of this, because I know for many of our listeners, this is going to resonate with you because your characters are having these conversations with you. So here we go. I will play the part of Ruth. I don't mean to make demands, Helen, but are you aware that you have not paid attention to me for months? Do you have any idea what I've been up to? I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I do think about you more often than you believe. It's just... Yes, you have other things to think about now. You have him. You're living a rather interesting story yourself. Perhaps you don't need to write one anymore. I do. Desperately. You have no idea. I long to sit down for four hours, five hours and enter your world and discover what happens next and make my best efforts to describe it. I miss it so much, slipping into that world, creating that world. I need it. So why don't you do it? Uh, why, Helen? It's hard to explain. It's hard even for me to understand. It's not that he stops me. I can't blame him at all. It's just... Have you shown him your work? I did, finally. Yes. And? He liked it. He had some excellent critiques and suggestions. I'm pleased to hear it. It's just that I can't help comparing my efforts with his... I've read every word of his dissertation more than once. It's magnificent, solid as a rock and already recognized as a substantial contribution in his field. In comparison, my scribblings are nothing but wisps of the imagination. So how can his work not come first, Ruth? And how can I not help him in any way possible? Then the second priority is anything I can do to earn money. I don't have a lot in my coffers, you know which means translating scientific talks and articles for agricultural journals or whatever else comes my way. And limping along, half a mile behind, covered in dust, one shoe missing, is my own fiction writing, barely in sight. Oh dear, but it's hardly a surprise, is it? What has Aunt Charlotte always told you? And isn't that what the artist is about? My courageous willingness to forego love and family for my art in contrast to Nellie's acquiescence to wifehood? I have hardly acquiesced to wifehood, Ruth, at least not like Nellie. Do you see me collecting hemstitched linens and sending out engraved wedding invitations? Yes, I'm going to be married, but not like that. No guests, no tiered cake. I'll wear my brown silk costume that I've had for five years. Helen, be honest. I'm not talking about the wedding. Let me ask you this. What would happen if you said to him, Dear, I can't see you for a few days. I'm working on my novel. Yes, well, all right, Ruth, I'll be honest. This is what would happen. 
he would pat me on the head, metaphorically speaking, grant me permission with a cheerful smile, tell me he hopes I enjoy myself. Then he'd remind me about his deadline. But don't worry, he'll manage fine without me. And I would feel sheepish and selfish and I'd probably say, oh, never mind, I'll do it another time. It's not really important compared to your work, our conversations, our excursions. And it certainly won't earn us any money. I can't say it's any use at all, in fact. Elias's dissertation will be published, you know, and very well published. The Clarendon Press at Oxford, no less. He'll need me to help prepare it. And Oxford's going to offer him a position as well, we're almost sure, whereas me... Oh, please, spare me your self-pity. If this is your attitude, how am I ever going to do what I need and want to do in my life? I'm drinking rather a lot these days, Helen. What are you going to do about it? Am I doomed or not? Do you know what I did last week? I drank too much wine at Harry's opening and I insulted him. I called him a paint-splattered poser. I was so drunk that I could hardly pronounce the words. And then I kissed him on the mouth in front of his wife, in front of the press and all our colleagues and friends. Are you going to write that? Of course I am. It's all in my notes already. Just give me time. A little more time. The longer you stall, Helen, the harder it's going to be. But you don't need me to tell you that. No, I don't. Whenever I manage to gather up my accumulated pages, they feel heavier and heavier. I have to scrape off layers of guilt and neglect and ambivalence before I can regain any momentum at all. Every time it gets harder. It's not him I'm fighting. It's myself. All I can manage is the odd poem. Poems don't take long to finish. I'm going to be harsh here, Helen. Imagine yourself ten years from now. What will you say to yourself if you have not finished and published your novel? Think about it. Take your time. I'm not in a hurry. Well, Ruth, I've succeeded in endowing you with a forthright personality, haven't I? That's one success I can claim, at least. Yes, that is a harsh question. The truth is I don't know how to imagine my life ten years from now. I'll be the wife of an Oxford don. I might have children. I'll probably be doing bits of translation here and there. But if I've given up on you, I will judge myself more harshly than you could. I will be horribly disappointed. And I don't want to make you jealous, but it's not just you and Nellie. There's so much more I want to write. Stories, poems, plays, more novels. Haven't made much of a start, have I? Right. That was a lot of fun. This really <laughs> spoke to me in terms of the times in my life when I have just allowed other things to stop me from writing. When I've gone, even at the podcast, there's days where I'm like, well, I need to get the podcast done and I need to get this done for our listeners, etc. But I'm first and foremost a writer. This is why I started this podcast. I want to keep being a writer and I need to publish to keep doing that. But when I allow all these other things to get in the way of the writing, that becomes difficult. So was this something that was coming through in her diary entries, in her letters? Where did you get the sense of her frustration from? And then please tell our listeners what happened. Did she end up publishing? Okay. Well, it was in part from... Just the snippets that she said from time to time. I don't know if she was working on a novel at that stage of her life. I know that she did write short stories and poems and tried to publish them. And occasionally she would refer to what she was trying to do. And then towards in her 70s, she said to Man very kind of self-deprecatingly, she was always very self-deprecating. She said, 
I need to retire as your translator because even though this might be silly, this might sound silly, she said something like that, I need to try to do my own writing while there's still time. And it's it's just such a poignant statement, but that it just is so telling, you know, that she's been deferring her own work all this time to do this these monumental tra- translations of Man and other people as well, and raising three children and navigating this complicated marriage. And yes, she never had enough time and I think justification for herself to prioritize her writing. So in part, it comes from what I glean from her, what she has said, but it also comes from, that's definitely a place where it comes from my experience. So I've had very similar struggle with myself over the years. I mean, I've written, I've been writing nonfiction for a long time about the theater work that I do. And there it feels like this kind of an altruistic purpose because I'm doing this for the people who want to study and practice this kind of theater. And there's an audience and, you know, I don't feel guilty putting time into that because I know that there's a a utility to it, that it's it's kind of a, a service that I can do. But for fiction, it's very different. And I don't know if you feel this as a fiction writer, but, you know, it's very easy, I think, for a woman writer to think, well, the world is not asking for my work. There are plenty of writers, there's plenty of fiction out there. Why should I add to that? Do I have anything useful to say? Probably not. That kind of thing. So that dialogue can go on for me. <laughs> and I know that I'm far from alone in, in that. So I was as I did in a number of places in the book, I kind of gave some of my experience to my character, Helen, thinking that it probably did in some ways echo what what was true for her. Yeah, it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners who are, I'm sure, grappling with their own characters who are giving them a hard time. Yeah, let's all be mindful of that and prioritize our work together. Last question before we we finish. Can you tell us a bit about working with Jacqueline Press? If you have an agent, how that process looked? Because on the podcast, we discuss a lot of traditional journeys to publication. And I love to look at how there are many different ways to publish. Yes, yes, I can tell you what that story was. I did look for an agent. I looked hard. I sent out a lot of queries and and didn't get much interest. I think that, you know, the topic of this book, it seems kind of rather esoteric or specialized. I mean, people, it's, it's definitely in the realm of literary fiction. It's not the kind of story that's going to make a ton of money. It's not going to be a blockbuster, big bestseller. And agents need work that has some potential commercial impact so this was a pretty uncommercial project I did try and actually at one point I decided to try agents in Germany because Thomas Mann is much more of a household name there there's still a lot of active interest in Thomas Mann and I found an agent who was very excited and very enthusiastic and confident that he would sell it and then while he was in the middle of working on it very sadly he died suddenly so I was back to square one, and I really didn't want to start the agent search again. So I tried independent publishers, presses that that would would look at unagented manuscripts, and still didn't find anyone who wanted to take it. I was on the point of considering a hybrid press, 
and was in conversation with one of them, which sounded fine, you know, at that point. And at my age, I'm not young. I just felt I don't want to wait forever to get this into print. I just want Helen's story to be out there. And I don't, I'm not ambitious for it to be read by millions. I would just like it to be available for people who might be interested. So I was willing to go the hybrid press route. If you're not familiar with the hybrid press concept, it just means basically a hybrid press does everything that a regular traditional press does, except that the author covers the costs. So they have an editorial process. They, they select manuscripts that they think that they like. They will do promotion and so on. But you take the financial risk, not them. So just as I was in that conversation, someone connected with me with Jack Legg Press. And it was someone that I've been in touch with off and on who herself had done marketing for Jack Legg. And she said, you know, she told them about the book and they were interested. And then it was like a miracle. The editor wrote to me and said, we would love to take your book if if you want to go with us. And I tell you, like after all of this, no thanks or, or total silence, it was incredible and wonderful. And then, so I, of course I said yes. And she turned out to be an incredibly wonderful editor. So we had a long editorial process. She was very committed, very insightful, very supportive. And I'm extremely grateful to her for how we were able to work together. So Jack yeah. Lake Press is, is small, independent. I'm very happy to be with them. I feel like I'm in good company. They publish literary fiction, poetry, and memoir. And I, I feel like after all that, I found a very good home. Yeah, and they're very passionate about your book because they made sure that they got it into our hands. You know, it's difficult for us to pay attention to the smaller indie presses when we've got publicists from the big five who are constantly messaging us with, you know, the big books and the buzz books that are coming out. So it takes great passion from an indie press to cut through that noise and get to us and be like, you're going to love this book. Please read it. Please feature it. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for that kind of passion from a publisher where you're not just one of many, many authors in a very big stable. Right. I, I know that from, of course, like all of us in this game, <laughs> you know, we read a lot about the whole publishing, talk to people about the whole publishing world. And I know that in many ways, you're in many ways better off with a, a small publisher who will pay attention in a more personal way to your, your book. But I do want to say that I made the decision to hire a publicist. So Jack Legg referred me to this publicist and she's been terrific. So it was she who contacted you rather than the publisher. I want to give her credit for that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so, again, that's something for writers to consider. You mm -hmm. know, sometimes you, you have your publicist at the publishing house, but sometimes it really is in your best interest to hire someone external. I wish we could chat about that some more, Joe, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, a reminder, the book is Mrs. Low Porter. We will link to it so that you can purchase it. And yeah, we wish you much success with this, Joe. Thank you so much, Bianca. And thanks for the conversation. 
Hi everyone, after our break we're back with our bookseller comps recommendation segment with the ever-fabulous Emily Summer from East City Bookshop in Washington DC, a wonderful independent bookstore that you absolutely have to go and visit and spend a lot of money at. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Bianca, and thank you to all the listeners who do order from us and come by when they're in DC. It makes me so happy. Oh, that makes me happy too. So you guys keep doing that, okay? Right, now for those of you who are wondering where the listener call-in Q&A is in this episode, we have moved that across to our Substack newsletter where it will be available at the end of every month in video format, not just in audio. So you can see Carly, Cece, and myself in conversation as we tape the segment and answer your questions. It's still a free resource. You just need to subscribe to the newsletter to access it. And you'll find more details on our website, theshitaboutwriting.com. Right, so Emily, we have got 15 comp requests today. It's a lot of work for you. Let's dive in. Here's the first one. Hi, I'm Karen. I'm seeking comps, a character-driven dual POV novel that's a love story with social justice undercurrent set on the California coast. Emerald, determined to survive her fourth year of kindergarten teaching contract, is racked by guilt and grief following the recent death of her boyfriend. Her job is in jeopardy, and she's living temporarily in a friend's garage. Chris, a special forces vet, is struggling to regain custody of his son and reestablish a civilian lifestyle. He carries tons of unresolved trauma from military deployment and his wrecked marriage. When Chris arrives to pick up his son from Emerald's classroom, there's instant chemistry. Then the school goes on to lockdown caused by a nearby gun threat. In the ensuing few weeks, Emerald and Chris dive into a passionate affair. So hi, Karen. Thank you so much for calling in. So I can't quite tell from that you all are so limited in your time that sometimes I have to make leaps and assumptions. You can always call back and correct me if you need a follow up. But for this one, it sounds like this book is not a romance. It sounds more to me like a coming of age story, a love story. And in thinking that way, I was thinking of books that might not be specific plot comps, but might also have that human drama element that is somewhat issue driven with mental health questions, questions about overcoming trauma, how to develop healthy relationships, that sort of thing. So with that in mind, the comps that immediately came to me were If We're Being Honest by Kat Shook, which is sort of a family drama, but I think it has that same sort of people struggling with how to get to the next step and connect. Likewise, the book that just came out, I love it so much. I just finally read it. Mercury by Amy Jo Burns is another story of a small town, two different families, how they come together. But it's really about like how people find each other and are able to connect even while they're overcoming and trying to figure things out on their own. Another favorite that I know I have mentioned in the past is Ask Again Yes by Mary Beth Keene. And again, I think all of these feel like they might fit your work, Karen, and that it's character driven, that it's more than one perspective, and that it's got sort of an issue driven undercurrent. So I think all of those might be possibilities. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. Here's our second one. Hi, it's Lauren, and all our ghost celebrity medium Miss Tanya Conscience kicks off her book tour with a bomb drop. Her childhood best friend Meredith killed her high school boyfriend TJ. Meredith, a struggling psychologist, can only watch the TV in horror as her darkest night is revealed, one she can't remember. 
As a recovering alcoholic, Meredith's past isn't easy for her to relive. But as Tanya's announcement starts to threaten her career, her family, and her delicate mental state, she knows she has to figure out why Tanya has targeted her and what really happened to TJ. In an act of desperation, she tries some of Tanya's media methods and, to her surprise, finds herself in a better mental state and face-to-face with the ghost of TJ, who hopes her piece together than I he died. In his dual-timeline work of upmarket fiction, Meredith battles her inner demons and the exterior threat that her former best friend created, the downfall of her career and her family. Given line the underlying themes of toxic female friendship and questionable visits from ghosts, I've been considering Yellowface. I've also thought about Girl on the Train. However, I know it's probably too outdated. Hi, Lauren. I'm immediately getting flashbacks to the great Sandra Bullock movie, Hope Floats. I might be dating myself. I don't know if anybody's seen Hope Floats, but that one opens with an announcement on national TV that rocks Sandra Bullock's character's world. So not that you should use that as a comp. There there are no ghosts, but that's where my head went, and it was a good association. So you mentioned Yellow Face and The Girl on the Train. I would say, based on what you've said about this situation and Meredith, the potential murder, I would steer away from those. I do think that Yellowface has that toxic friendship. It has very upmarket appeal, but I think it is so concerned with the publishing industry and specifically with about how race is treated in the publishing industry that I think that it might it might be too specific to be a helpful comp. And with Girl on a Train, I feel like that one is might be one of those that's too old and too big. A more recent book that I think sounds right on the money is Listen for the Lie by Amy Tintera. And it's actually not even out yet, but it's getting tons of buzz. And I think when it publishes on March 5th, I think it's going to be big. But in Listen for the Lie, we also have a main character who may or may not have killed someone in high school and cannot remember. A very snappy, sharp fantastic narrative voice. I could not put it down. There is not a ghostly or supernatural element, but there's very much themes of friendship, potentially very unreliable narrator, and figuring out for yourself, what did I do? What happened? I think that's a really good comp, and I very much enjoyed the book. So I hope everybody buys it on March 5th or pre-order it. Even better, pre-order it. That helps the bookstores, the publisher, and most importantly, the author. An an older title that I think is lesser known, but I really liked it, is called The Better Liar by Tannen Jones. And that is about sisters, but it's a sister relationship that really feels like a toxic friendship vibe. It also has questions of like, who is reliable? Can we rely on our own memory? What actually happened? And I think might fit. And for the ghostly aspect of it, I think you should check out Grave Expectations by Alice Bell which is a very recent release. And in that, the main character does talk to ghosts and ghosts help her along. So I think together those might work. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, here's number three. Hi, thank you so much, Emily, for doing this. My literary suspense is like Diz Tate's The Brutes meets Mona Awad's Bunny. It involves a hostage situation over the course of a weekend. So in that way, it's a bit like Anxious People. However, it's much more offbeat and literary than that story. My main character meets a man and immediately following a series of unfortunate events come her way and a group of teenage girls follow her home one day and they embark on a ritual to get rid of the curse of the new boyfriend. So as I've been saying on the last few comp segments, y'all are doing my job for me. I think that Diz Tate's Brutes meets Mona Awad's Bunny is perfect. That immediately tells me who is the reader for this? What is it going to feel like? What is the tone? 
And the plot almost doesn't matter because that, I mean, that gets me. I think that's a fantastic comp and a fantastic pairing. I would add, maybe think about Cult Classic by Sloane Crosley and maybe look at Melissa Broder's works and maybe Rachel Yoder who wrote Night Bitch. But I really think that Brutes meets Bunny is chef's kiss. I love it. Great. Yeah, it's awesome to see our listeners upping their game, right? Okay, here's number four. Hi, I'm on the lookout for comps for my upper middle grade science fiction novel. It's about kids who discover a second earth where dinosaurs still roam, trees are the humanoid species, and humans themselves never evolved beyond apes. 13-year-old Brianna meets a tree boy who can transfer things from his world to hers and fears he will bring dinosaurs to terrorize her city. Told in dual POV, the tree boy shows his true objective to be freeing his parents from secret imprisonment on human earth. From either side of their language barrier, they experience the culture shock of each other's worlds and disrupt both in their efforts to protect what they love. Overall, the story is an enemies-to-allies adventure of children from different earths finding common ground in a fight to save nature. I am encountering plenty of contemporary titles with environmental elements, but I'm struggling to find one as supernatural as mine. I appreciate any recommendations you can make. Thank you. So for our upper middle grade book, for this one, I had to enlist the assistance of our wonderful children's and young adult buyer at the store, Amy Andrews. And together we thought about The Wild Robot which is, it's a big one. So it might be a little, it might be too big. Although I think you have more room with some of the best sellers to comp those in middle grade more than in the adult space. And The Wild Robot is not a franchise like, you know, The Hunger Games or Twilight. It's not that big. But that also deals with a new environment, sort of a strange creature making connections between very different beings. So I think the wild robot is a possibility. And then Amy reminded me too of the last Quintista, which is set in space. So that's a big award winner. But again, I think there's more room to comp these impressive titles in the middle grade space. And that one's one that deals with like cryogenics and might have the sci-fi angle that we're looking for here. My colleague Morgan overheard us talking about this and suggested the Dactyl Hill Squad book, which might skew a little bit younger middle grade, but it's got dinosaurs. It's people and dinosaurs together. So I too had thought about the Dactyl Hill Squad. So I would look at those. Please thank all your colleagues for us, Emily. (laughs) I will. I already thanked them on behalf of myself. I was like, guys, I need help, but I will thank them for the podcast as well. Thank you. Okay. Here's number five. Hi, Bianca and Emily. Thank you for taking the time to answer our comp request. My name is Amber, and I'm looking for titles for my dual POV fantasy romance, The Art of Living Forever. Eris and his family have been awake on Earth for over 1,500 years, but Eris can't remember who he is or what he was before he woke up on a beach in Greece in 300 AD. However, his father claims to remember and lives under the premise they were once gods but fell to Earth when people stopped praying to and believing in them cursed to live forever with none of their former power. But if this is true, many of their fellow gods are missing. What Eris hasn't told his family is that he is tired of living forever and longs for a way out. When Eris meets a mortal woman who looks strangely similar to another he fell in love with a few hundred years prior, secrets begin to unravel as is discovered not all gods live forever. The only comp title I have so far is The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, but I'm not sure if it's too old. Thank you. 
I think, again, we're spot on with The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. I think sometimes when a book is so big and such an obvious comp that I think you almost have to mention it, right? Like you, it feels like you got to acknowledge it. Because as you were describing The Art of Living Forever, I was thinking of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. I also thought of The God of Endings by Jacqueline Holland, which is more recent and and not as huge or as scary a comp. That also deals with a woman who sort of has the ability to live forever and and lives these many different lives through time. I also thought about The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex Harrow, which is, I think, a really good comp. I often sell that to people who have liked and enjoyed and want something similar to Addie LaRue. And one that I'm sure I've talked about in the past is How to Stop Time by Matt Haig. It was not quite as big as his book, The Midnight Library, but I think it's very good. And it also deals with sort of living through different eras, living through different time. Do we want to, do we want to continue? But I think all of those might have the same feel. Marvelous. Okay. Here's number six. Hello. I am seeking comp titles for my dual timeline upmarket contemporary novel about a 22 year old woman who not knowing what else to do with her life decides to teach English in Mexico. A coming-of-age story about the search for identity and the things that hold us back from moving forward. The novel follows the protagonist and the friends she makes in Mexico as they navigate life in a fundamentally corrupt country. There's romance and heartbreak, elements of mystery, and themes of perception versus reality. The novel echoes the traveling-to-find-yourself premise of e love and the more sinister tone of the beach. Both of these books are quite old now. The love story and political backdrop in a Latin American setting is reminiscent of The Mermaid and the Drunks by Ben Richards, but this is a lesser known novel and older too. Do you have any suggestions for more recent titles I could comp? Thank you. I loved the book, The Beach, and I had forgotten about it. So thank you to this caller for mentioning The Beach by Alex Garland. If you all haven't read it, it was a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, which I had also forgotten, but a very good book. I do think it's a little old for our purposes, but the Eat, Pray, Love plus The Beach mention immediately brought to mind Ella Berman's book, Before We Were Innocent, which came out in either 2022 or 2023. So it's recent and it is also about young people in a different place and sort of searching for identity. I don't know that it has as much of the political backdrop as it sounds like our number six has here, but I definitely think it has the coming of age angle. I think it has the sort of new friends, you're young, you're in a strange place. I think it'll capture that feeling and tone, I hope. Another one I thought of that is probably a little bit old and maybe skews too dark, but it was a really good book that I'd also not thought of in a long time. And it's called Abroad by Katie Crouch. And it was almost an Amanda Knox retelling. It was very Amanda Knox inspired, if I remember correctly. Again, a little bit old, but I was really glad to be reminded of it. And I encourage people to check it out. Yeah, what was fascinating is that the Ella Berman Before We Were Innocent came out in April of 2023. And then only now recently got chosen for Reese's Book Club. So, which makes me think that there's a movie in the works that that happened that way around because Reese normally chooses new releases. She does normally choose new releases. And I definitely think she chooses things with an eye on what would make a good adaptation. So I think that is a good theory. Yeah. So that's definitely a big enough book to comp. Okay. Number seven. 
Hi, I'm calling for comps for my coming-of-age YA fiction novel told in first person set in the early 2000s. August Burke dreams of a life away from her narcissistic mother while waiting for her father to be released from prison. After starting college and moving away from home, she finds leaving her past behind is going to be easier said than done as she's haunted by her mother's critical voice and the missing puzzle pieces of a crime her father committed years ago. When a memoir assignment is given, August has a choice. Reveal her story with all its ugly truths or continue to hide from who she truly is. As her freshman year goes on, August makes progress in being the person she wants to be, one who has friends and even experiences her first romantic relationships. Just when she sets her own path to independence, she's thrust back into dealing with the consequences of her parents' actions. Returning home, this time without the support of her lifelong mentor, she has no choice but to confront her past, which includes finding answers in her mother's own stories. I appreciate your help. Thanks so much. So for this one, it's described as coming of age, young adult. I love the setting in the early 2000s. That's catnip for me. But because she's going to college and she's a little bit older, I thought of, you know, a lot of YA is sort of the high, like 12 to 18 age. So then we think of maybe the new adult, I don't know, Bianca and Cece and Carly would know better than I do where the lines are between all the different genres. But I was thinking of sort of like older YA or new adult or adult books that have such good crossover appeal. So the two that I thought of that might work here because of the family dynamics and the sort of trying to make it on your own after a difficult childhood, difficult um, parental relationships, The People We Keep by Allison Larkin, a favorite of mine. I don't, I never go back and listen to these. I should keep a tally of like how many times I mentioned because this has got to be at least the third time I've recommended The People We Keep by Allison Larkin, but it's wonderful. And another one that I know I've mentioned once before because we've sold it at the bookstore as a result of me mentioning it here is Fireworks at Night by Beth Raymer. And the last time I talked about it, it was in reference to a memoir, I think, but it was a very difficult like mother relationship. And Fireworks at Night is a book that I described as feeling like a memoir. It feels so realistic that you think, I I really thought, gosh, I wonder how much of this happened to her. But in both The People We Keep and Fireworks at Night, the protagonist is doing their darndest to make a life and escaping a very toxic relationship back home. And so I think that those would work. For more classic YA, again, my colleague Amy, shout out to Amy. Thank you for helping me. She suggested the YA book, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which made me think of one of my favorites, The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo, which also deals with not quite the toxic relationship and the difficulties we're talking about here, but also someone breaking away from their parents. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, you know, from what Colleen and Cece say, the industry has fallen away from using new adult as its own genre, but that's something we can get into with them on a separate episode. Yeah, we don't have a new adult section. Yeah, you see, so that's the thing. I don't think editors really consider it a, a distinct genre. And like you say, if bookstores don't have it in the store with their own shelves, then that measures up to what they've been saying. Okay, let's go to number eight. Hi, my name is Jennifer Reese, and I am looking for comps for my contemporary romance in which the editor of an anonymous celebrity gossip account starts a relationship with an actor without telling him about her side hustle. I have looked at a number of different books for comps and nothing quite feels right. Um, I've looked at Alicia Rye's First Comes Like. Um, I think that Tessa Bailey's Wreck the Halls is a really good fit, but I worry with the fact that it is a holiday slash Christmas book feels too specific when mine definitely is not that. 
My book also features chronic illness. And so I have used Talia Hibbert's Get a Life, Chloe Brown as a comp. And I also think that Emily Henry's Book Lovers would make a good comp, but it doesn't have that celebrity or chronic illness featured in the book. So I'm so curious to hear what you guys think. Okay, so my favorite type of romance, when we talk about romance tropes, which we do a lot at the bookstore because we sell so much romance, my favorite trope is a celebrity normal person relationship. That is, I am going to read every book that is a celebrity normal person romance. So I am absolutely here for your contemporary romance, Jennifer. I think it sounds great. And I think you're absolutely on the right track with your mentions of Alicia Rye, Tessa Bailey, absolutely to Talia Hibbert with the illness representation. I think that's great. I would say maybe not to Emily Henry, just because I think she is so big. I don't know. I'm not getting these query letters myself, but I bet every agent is getting a comp to Emily Henry. I think two more specific comps that you could think about are Funny You Should Ask by Alyssa Sussman. So that is a celebrity, normal person romance. And the normal person in that one is a journalist. So she interviews the celebrity and then 10 years later, they're brought back into their orbit in other circumstances. I thought that one was was very strong. And I think that sounds like it could be a good on par comp. And the other one that you didn't mention, but hopefully it's on your radar, is called A Non-Please by Demois. And that is an alias because it is about an anonymous celebrity gossip account. You might follow it on Instagram like I do. I get a lot of my information from Demois. She likes to say gossip is news. They're the same thing. And it's certainly more interesting or not more interesting, but more escapist news than the real news. So Demois, Non-Please by Demois was co-written, I think, by Jessica Goodman, who's written some really good YA. But I think that the fact that it's about an anonymous celebrity gossip account, you, you got to at least check out Demois and Non-Please. That one that's coming out soon that's sort of been dedicated to Taylor Swift and Swifties. I'm sure that's on your radar, Emily, the breakup tour with Emily Wibberley and Austin oh, yes, Sigmund yes, Broker. yes. That one is on my radar. I've not read it yet, but I, as a Swifty, I am really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm seeing that book getting tons of buzz. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Number nine. Hi, my name is Sarah. Thank you so much for this podcast and all you I'm looking for comp titles for my epic fantasy with a sublove romance called Uncharted. Thing. Both Western and Eastern culture influence the story heavily. My main character, Evelyn, is both Caucasian and Asian. One third of the population of Voya has a sweet to buy bias card. Evelyn has a J3 for a Fletcher who rejected her three years due to revenge from her strange father who may end up contracting an incurious from a monster that targets soulmates. While trying to find a cure, Evelyn learns more of fake mother's hidden culture that she has a mysterious connection to the magic that runs through Voya and is trying to see if it was right and intended her and pleasure for each other. Teams are identity, typically struggling and discovering it, acceptance of yourself, people, and other cultures. Fee versus free will, and life is about balance. Uh, comp titles like Inner War, Grim, is a fire, and Through the Orange Oak Tree. Thank you so much for your help. So for number nine, Epic Fantasy is another one. I did not solicit help with this, but I do have to think about like what I'm selling to customers because it is not where I read and, and is not my forte in terms of comps. But for the epic fantasy that you're describing here with Western versus Eastern, we have a biracial protagonist and we are torn between different cultures. I thought of a few of our most popular fantasies in the store. We sell a ton of The Bone Shard Daughter by Andrea Stewart. The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang, Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan. I would look at all of these because I think they deal with the themes of culture, identity, a connection to magic, 
And I think they all have the epic feel that you're going for. One of those I think could work, hopefully. Thank you very much. Here's number 10. Hi, it's Madeline Postman looking for comps. You kindly critiqued my query letter and first pages of 16 stories last August, and you've also provided narrative nonfiction comps, Ancestor Trouble and Sinkhole. I've also referenced Mott Street by Ava Chin and House of Glass by Hadley Freeman, as well as the glamour of Crazy Rich Asians. My hook was, researching my family history of Chinese and Jewish European immigrants to California, I am forced to reckon with my mother's suicide when I was four. I am now repositioning my book with a new title, Staring into the Sun, as a short story collection that links memoir with a family's intergenerational tale. It's ambitious, spanning the late 1800s to the present day, and China and Poland to New York and California. Current comps are Pulitzer Prize-winning Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout and her more recent Olive Again. Also, There There by Tommy Orange and Hate Ship Friendship by Alice Munro. In terms of breadth, I love Namwali Serpel's The Old Drift, though it's fiction with some magical realism and sci-fi. Thanks so much. Okay, so it sounds like we have talked about number 10 before in the context of being positioned as a memoir. And now, if I'm understanding correctly, we are repositioning it as fiction or a short story collection. With that in mind, if I'm understanding correctly, I would say no to the Olive Kittredge comps. I adore Elizabeth Strout, but I think when I think about Olive Kittredge, I think about that character. Like she is such a specific character and has such a specific point of view. And I also think about it being a distinctly main book and the the people that she's dealing with in her town. And it sounds like what we have here, these 16 stories are more sweeping and more concerned with like identity in a broader sense and sort of family legacies. And I don't know, I don't, it doesn't sound just from what I can hear. I would not say the mere structure of the linked stories, I think is probably not enough. I would say yes, though, to there, there, because again, I think it's the linked stories making the larger narrative. And that one is one that is more sort of sweeping and goes back in time further and is more concerned with identity and family history, if that makes sense. I love Alice Monroe's hate ship, courtship, friendship, love ship, marriage, but I think it might be too old. I love the suggestion of the old drift. I think that one is new and might really work. I would suggest probably, I think it's probably too big, but I did think of Homegoing by Yad Jesse, just because that is a book that is, you said ambitious, that it was an extremely ambitious book. You've got hundreds of years of family history in a structure that could feel like short stories. So I would think about that. And a book that is coming out next month is called Redwood Court by Delana Dameron. It's coming from the Dial Press. And it reads, I think, more as a novel, but it does have like very, very distinct chapters that you could read as short stories. And the reason I thought of Redwood Court particularly is because it is, it's fiction. It's being marketed as, as a novel, but I can tell by the way that the author has talked on social media, that it's very much like a true family tale, like extremely personal. And it has that very authentic feel of a memoir. So, and I loved it. I want people to read it because it was just a beautiful book, Redwood Court. Thanks for putting that on my radar. Okay, here we go. Number 11. 
Isla Davies has no idea how things have gotten this bad. She never took the time to look up and notice that she's been barely showing up for her own life. No idea how 17 years have gone by and whatever made Isla Isla no longer existed. But now that Esme's about to set off to college, Isla is confronted with the reality that she has lost touch with herself completely and with a husband or soon to be husband who reinforces that she's ordinary. So she decides she needs to take a break from it all to disconnect and reset. Isla sets off on a one week spa retreat where she plans to do nothing but lounge around and get massaged, a deeply relaxing vacation where her biggest worry will be whether to have tacos or quesadillas for lunch but when she checks into the resort she realizes she booked the wrong trip instead of the week of me spa retreat she accidentally signed up for the week of me memoir writing retreat where she's forced to think about her life from every angle in the deepest ways the unlikely event is funny uplifting filled with a cast of characters who attend the memoir retreat and of course a subplot love story isla discovers that her life prior to esme was in fact filled with dreams and that it's never too late to inject the life back into your world I told Bianca right before we got started that I just had a a meeting with a college counselor for my daughter. So I really was feeling this one that it, it happened so fast. And you're like, oh, what's what's going on? One I have mentioned in the past is called Amazing Grace Adams. I had somebody come into the store and say, what was the book that you told us was about the mom who was fed up and had a middle finger on the cover? And I knew immediately it's Amazing Grace Adams. So I would check that one out. That's one that I probably the last time comped to Where'd You Go, Bernadette? But it sounds like Isla Davies in, in our number 11 is sort of at the end of a rope, has lost herself, is figuring things out. So check out Amazing Grace Adams. Another one that I absolutely love that has not gotten enough attention, which might mean that it's not a good comp, but I want to recommend it anyway as a great read. And it's called When I Ran Away by Alona Bannister. She has younger children and, and there is not a retreat, an organized retreat, but she does make her own retreat by going to a hotel and escaping her family and watching Real Housewives. But it's a very substantive book. I, I loved it. I want more people to read when I ran away. And then the one that is probably the most spot on comp and the book that I am so excited for everybody to read later this year, it's called The Wedding People by Allison Esbach, who wrote a book that I am sure I have mentioned in the past called Notes on Your Sudden Disappearance. It was one of my favorites of the last few years. Well, The Wedding People is coming out, I think in May, it's later this year. And it is so, so, so wonderful. It is, I did not think that Allison could write a book that I loved as much as Notes on Your Sudden Disappearance, and she did it. But the premise of The Wedding People is that our main character, everything's fallen apart. Her marriage has fallen apart, her job, like she's in a really terrible place. And in fact, she is close to committing suicide when she checks into this hotel with this plan in mind. But it's a mistake, much like the retreat in in our number 11 here. It is a mistake. The hotel was supposed to be closed to only the members of a wedding. She is the only person there who is not in the wedding party. And so in addition to facing this crisis and checking into this hotel at what may very well be the end of her life, she is now surrounded by an entire wedding party who are throwing a week's worth of celebrations and their lives entwine. And she has to figure out where to go from there. It also has a little bit of like maybe a love story subplot. It is so wonderful. I cannot recommend it highly enough. The Wedding People, everybody, you got to pre-order that one too. It's worth it and worth the wait. I loved, loved, loved her first one. So this is definitely on my radar now. Jeez, the first one was incredible as well. Okay, here we go. Number 12. Hello. Please help me find comps for my dual POV speculative YA novel about Knox, a 15-year-old boy with a remote control heart who reunites with his politically powerful parents 10 years after he was abducted, declared dead, 
and Raised in Secret by Anarchist Assassins. The second point of view belongs to Knox's best friend, Caleb, whose police commissioner father fights a lifelong deadly feud with the assassins who raised and trained Knox and sees Knox as the key to defeating his enemies for good. Knox struggles with re redefining who he is and how far he will go to protect those he loves. Caleb must choose between loyalty to Knox and loyalty to his family. I've described the book as Born Identity meets Princess Diaries with angsty anime vibes, but have yet to find query worthy comps. Family, identity, and self-determination are at the heart of the story. There is no special technology or anything supernatural. It is speculative because of the setting, which is a human-made artificial archipelago like Venice on modern metropolis steroids based on real world seasteading technology. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Okay, so this one also wins for a just incredible comp right there in the pitch. The Born Identity meets the Princess Diaries. I mean, I don't know if you can use those two because they're so big, but immediately I'm like, okay, well, I've never read anything like that before. So I like it. But something recent that has a speculative feel, this is adult, so it's not speculative YA, but it is sort of technology and parents and my colleague Morgan, when we were discussing the earlier book, suggested Bridge by Lauren Bukes or Bukes, B-E-U-K-E-S, which just came out. She also wrote The Shining Girls, but Bridge is her newest. Maybe that would be a fit. But if not, I think you're onto something with Born Identity and The Princess Diaries because that is an unforgettable pairing. Yeah, that is pretty cool. <laughs> okay, number 13. Eyes Wide Open is a present-day first-person contemporary romance, a later-in-life first love story that crosses borders, melts cultures, and defies heteronormative and monogamous convention. 33-year-old Wally Rankin hosts a relationship podcast for a popular dating app but has never been in love. After fleeing a lackluster relationship on which her job depended, she confirms to herself that she is incapable of love or traditional relationships. She gets a chance to host a show for a new non-monogamous dating app, but she has to prove to them and herself that she's right for the job. In the app, she matches with the perfect casual fling, Shahriar, a transient Iranian who's leaving the country in a week. But a delayed PR card forces him to stay in town and the two build a relationship on borrowed time. Wally catches feelings, and when Shahriar finally departs, she faces the ultimate test of her new non-monogamous lifestyle. When the two reunite and Wally gets the job offer, she must decide if she can embrace love and a career on her own terms. I see this as open where Rachel Krantz meets something like the arc by Tori Mudhon. It has strong sexual content but isn't erotica, humor but isn't rom-com. Themes and subject matter are in line with Sally Rooney's nuanced approach to romance. Help! So I would totally read Eyes Wide Open. I feel like non-monogamy and polyamory are definitely having a moment. We can see it in our book sales in both the nonfiction and the fiction space. I think Open by Rachel Krantz and The Ark are wonderful suggestions. I would add The Lifestyle by Taylor Hahn, which is a novel about a couple experimenting, as you might guess, with the lifestyle, the swinging lifestyle. I don't know if you still say, if people still say swinging. So if that is an outdated term, I apologize. And then the other one that I will suggest just came out like maybe last week. You've probably seen the articles in like Vulture and the cut about it. I feel like I've seen it a lot of places. And it's a memoir called More by Molly Roden Winter. And it's the memoir of a woman who, who they decided to open up their marriage. And she definitely explores all these themes that it sounds like that we're talking about in Eyes Wide Open, testing out the non-monogamous lifestyle, defying conventional expectations, and where we go from there. Thank you, Emily. We have got two left. You have done an excellent job. Here we go. Last two. I have a comp question for Emily. I'm such a huge fan. Thank you for all of the great recommendations already. I'm looking for a comp to my story about an adult exploring 
a relationship with a group of people who once ostracized her as a teen, and now becoming a little bit obsessed with this second chance at friendship with the cool kids who are now adults. It is suspenseful. There are dark elements talking about revenge and flashbacks to the things that happened in the past, but there are no truly serious themes and no murder. I've got Rebecca Mackay's I Have Some Questions for You, and I've got a novel, novel Obsession by Caitlin Barash, which is about a woman becoming obsessed with someone else, and The Ballerinas. But I'm not really sure how to find books that aren't too dark because this is upmarket. Thanks so much. Okay, so again, we get we get our own suggestions here. And initially, I heard you mention Rebecca Mackay's I Have Some Questions for You. And I thought, I don't know that I, I that's the you know true crime aspect. There's a murder. But I think that you're I think that's actually a very astute comp because what I loved about Rebecca Mackay's I have some questions for you were the like the layers in that book and one of the key layers that really resonated with me is that like how we misunderstand the people that we grow up with and we have these expectations and perceptions of them that are not necessarily accurate and how that follows us later in life. So I actually think that the friendship elements in that book and the sort of revisiting those tender, vulnerable, our high school selves as adults. I think that's actually a really wise comp. I often mention a novel obsession by Caitlin Barash. So I think that's a really good one too. I have not read The Ballerinas yet, but I, I can see it. I would add Wahala by Nikki May. So in Wahala, it, there is not a revisiting of a friendship necessarily, but in that one, it is a really great upmarket a little darkness, but not, it's not super edgy. Like it's still very upmarket and accessible. And it's a group of women who are friends. Several of them have been friends for a very long time. And then a newcomer comes to the group and that changes the dynamics and things go awry. But I thought Wahala was an excellent book and I would take a look at it to add to your list. All right. Here is our last one. Hey, Carly, Cece and Bianca. My name is Dave and I'm looking for some comp titles to a book that I've written called The Throwback. It's a contemporary upmarket literary fiction book with some action subplots. There are themes of worldview, coming of age, all tackling topics of addiction, 90s nostalgia culture, and the current comfort crisis that modern technology has burdened our world with. The intended audience of Throwback is for males and females between the ages of 25 to 45 years old. I could really use your help as I've been struggling to nail down specific comps when there are so many themes present in the story. I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you for everything you do. Hi, Dave. Thank you for listening and writing in about the throwback. I love that we're ending on this one because I feel like I have the perfect comp for you. And it is Wellness by Nathan Hill, which is one of my favorite novels of last year. It is the most wonderful kind of contemporary literary fiction, absolutely concerned with our worldview, very nostalgic for the 90s, which you all know I am a sucker for, very interested in sort of what the the wellness industry and what we promise and look for right now in terms of comforting ourselves and, and bettering ourselves. And I think it fits right in with your intended audience, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful read. I absolutely adored Wellness by Nathan Hill. So check that out. And I hope everybody else will if they haven't already. Thank you, Emily. That one's on my audiobooks that I need to get to. Yeah. The audiobook was excellent. I listened to most of it. I usually go back and forth between audio and paper, but it, it was great in both formats. 
Yeah, no, I figure if I have a to be read on audio and then a to be read in physical books that I'll somehow manage to get to both and they won't be overwhelming. But so far that's not working out. So I'll let you know. Thanks for adding to the to be read pile, Emily. And for our listeners, please make sure that you get in your comp request for February by around about the 15th or 16th of February. We have to tape earlier. So that will make sure that you reach that cutoff point. And Emily will chat to you next month. Thank you so much, Bianca. Talk to you soon. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.